Welcome to the Coaching Talks Podcast, your inspirational moment to continue your growth journey. In which kind of cities we'll be living by 2050? Today, we'll talk about the future of self-sufficient cities together with the pioneer, author, and award-winning architect, Vicente Guayart. And now, relax and enjoy. Welcome back. This is Mark Siles speaking from our studios in Helsinki. By 2050, the world's population is expected to reach 9.8 billion. Nearly 70% of this booming population, 6.7 billion people, is projected to live in urban areas. According to the World Economic Forum, there is no doubt that the city will be the defining feature of human geography for the 21st century. 1.3 million people are currently moving into cities each week, and there are at the moment 21 megacities with over 10 million people, when up to 1975 there were only three. As cities become an even more critical driver of the global economy and wealth, it's becoming crucial to ensure that they are optimized to maximize efficiency and sustainability while enhancing the quality of life in each urban conglomeration. Smart cities will be driven by features like low power sensors, wireless networks and mobile-based applications to measure and optimize everything within cities. The optimum design and implementation of how the environment, safety, transportation, utilities and buildings are combined in a unique approach will define the wished future success. There are a lot of unknowns and challenges to be solved. This means that the theoretical approach to this issue won't be good enough to innovate and develop the anatomy of the future smart city as new learnings and insights keep emerging. To talk about the future of self-sufficient cities we have today with us all the way from his office in Barcelona, the Spanish architect Vicente Guayart. Vicente was the chief architect of Barcelona City Council between 2011 and 2015 with the responsibility of developing the strategic vision for the city and its major development projects. There, he developed the idea called Urban Habitats to integrate all the different layers of urban development into a unified department. Urbanism, infrastructures, transportation, energy, water, housing and environment. During his term, the city invested more than 1 billion euros in urban projects and city transformation. He also co-founded and directs the Institute for Advanced Architecture of Catalonia, where he undertakes initiatives such as the Media House Project together with the MIT's Media Lab and leads the Master in Advanced Ecological Buildings. Vicente has been the founder of the Shukov Lab at the Higher School of Economics in Moscow, where he develops the Master of Prototyping Future Cities and has given lectures in many universities around the world, including Princeton, Harvard, MIT, Columbia, the Architectural Association School in London, or Marchi in Moscow. His professional office, Wired Architects, has developed many international widely recognized and awarded projects, like the Port of Fuji, and Keilung in Taiwan, or the Sociopolis neighborhood in Valencia, and is working in projects of several scales around the world. He is the author of books like Geologics or The Self-Sufficient City and co-author of the Metapolis Dictionary of Advanced Architecture. 
His work has been exhibited in places like the Biennale of Venezia or MoMA in New York. The American Institute of Architects organized in 2010 a solo exhibition of his work in Washington, D.C. Vicente, welcome to our show. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you. Before starting the interview, let me ask you, what are you truly passionate about? Well, my true passion is about the next thing that I will do. When I was a kid, I was traveling with my parents around Europe every summer. And I discovered the past and the present. And maybe we were talking about the future of these places. What I'm interested in is about how humanity created the conditions for living together, how to design buildings, how to make cities. And I am very much interested about the history of what we did before. And I am very much interested about what we'll do next. So every time that I think about the future is uh, connected with what I learned about what we did in the past. Passionate about the future. I love that. How would you say then that your passion is linked with what you think that the world needs at the moment? I would say that innovation happens in different spheres, uh, at different speed in different areas. For example, the algorithm for a Google search can change in any moment. Uh, cell phone, uh, Apple change, uh, have a new model every year. Uh, one car upgrade his brand every five years. Uh, I mean, the, the, the uh, one specific model. And then the cities uh, change every 25 to 30 to 40 years. So I would say that if we see uh, how cities were at the beginning of 20th century and how were at the end, there were at least uh, two or three major transformations. So that means that the city that is coming uh, will be different to the one that we have been living. And there is always this connection between the paradigm that we have in front of us in order to take the decisions to go to do these kind of cities. So in the 60s, for example, the cities were car-oriented. We were building highways. Then there were more cars. Then there were more highways. And then in city, many cities around the world, they were building highways, literally in the middle of the main avenues. So now we have a start to demolish this highway because, and we are thinking to forbidden the cars in the cities. So that means that uh, cities are always changing and we need to have a vision about what is coming next and what we want, how we want to live in order to transform our city. In your presentations, you talk about the principles of global connectivity and local self-sufficiency to invent the city of the future that you're referring now and build the present. Could you explain those two concepts to our audience, global connectivity and local self-sufficiency? We founded uh, at the Institute for Advanced Architecture of Catalonia in the year 2000. At that moment, the world, Google didn't exist, Facebook didn't exist, Instagram, the emails will start to work. And then at that time, the question was uh, how internet, how the digital technologies will change the way we live, will change how architecture is done, how these cities are planned. My uncle has an oven that was connected to internet. And he said, yeah, I call my oven before I go home and then it's on and so on. And I say, well, what a stupid application, no? Because if uh, internet and the digital tools and the way we apply to our buildings or our housing is just as a kind of gadget, something that is kind of useless, doesn't make sense. So we realized that the two important things about the digital world is that we can learn from each other we can connect to other people. And, and the second thing 
And that was important because at that time we started to work with MIT, with Neil Hassan Trio, and Neil Hassan Trio from the Center of Beats and Atoms. We did that media house project with him. Uh, the, the, we, we realized that the digital by itself was not relevant at all. Digital could be used, useful if we used to connect people, to learn from them, to create a kind of global networks of people sharing knowledge, developing open source design, and so on. And the second topic is that few years later, we start to work, we design our first sufficient house, uh, we call the mm-hmm. FabLab house, that was built with wood, was the first uh, self-sufficient building built ever built in Barcelona. And then we realized that the digital technology allow us is to be connected in, uh, in global networks of economy of knowledge, but then to be productive locally. What we could learn from each other is, is how we fabricate things. Using digital fabrication, we start to work and to develop the global network of fab labs that they start in, at MIT. And then if you are connected, you share knowledge, but you have the technology in order to produce energy in your building to 3D print uh, some kind of any tool that you need. And also, if you are able to grow your food near your home, then that's bingo. I mean, we, we are changing the world because suddenly we don't need to import tomatoes from Brazil or we don't have unemployed people here in Barcelona that they go to IKEA to buy a chair that has been produced in China. In China. The world will change always following things that make sense. And then we discovered at that time, this was like 10 or 12 years ago, that this should be the new big challenge, is that cities become uh, productive. That's why I wrote the book, The Self-Sufficient City, because the new Mm -hmm. challenge for cities is to be productive again. We start to talk about the zero-emission cities, and it seems in in Europe now they decide that the new big challenge will be to become zero-emission by 2050. This is exactly what we were uh, reading 10 years ago. That sounds really interesting. And somehow you have already started to answer what was going to be my next question. And I know that this question, if every time you have been asked, you would get a euro, now you would be a millionaire. But let me ask you once again, in which kind of cities do you think that we will be living by 2050? When we wrote that book, they said, well, that's true. You are super optimistic. But what we are looking around is something different. And then someone told me, you know, there are two potential futures. One that is Blade Runner and the other that is the self-sufficient city. Well, Blade Runner is a city run by corporations when the climate has damaged, damaged so much our environment that we don't see the sun. It's always raining. People are afraid between each other. We don't distinguish the humans uh, with the robots. And then uh, there is no hope, I would say. And this is one potential feature that we could see. You see some videos about the future of cities from the Pentagon that you can find in mm-hmm. YouTube. They say cities are the places where the big disasters can come. Because if you have 1,000 people in a city of 1 billion, they can make a revolution. They can uh, uh, distribute the diseases. Obviously, there are many ways of thinking on the future. One way of thinking that is everything will be very dangerous. We need to protect. We need to be afraid of each other. We need to buy guns and so on. The other approach, that this is the one that we propose, is that we live in cities because we want. We live in cities because a city is an agreement between people in order to live together, in order to uh, have a mutual 
I would say cooperation by selling, by sharing, by living together, taking care of each other, sometimes discussing, uh, but also mm-hmm. sometimes, many times cooperating to live better. And, and then the next challenge is that cities become productive again. If we have now solar panels, we can have energy produced in our buildings, we can store energy in batteries. Yeah, we were working uh, on that in the last uh, 12 or 14 years already, uh, and we are already proving that this is possible. But the question is, we need to move these small-scale projects, doing buildings that produce energy, producing food, like uh, like in, in Iceland, I discovered a greenhouse in Iceland that they produce the tomato for 20% of the people. This is a masterpiece. We could have the greenhouse on the top of our urban buildings. Buildings could produce energy and could produce food for the people. I am working, and there are many people working in the world in order to produce cities that are more ecological and cities that empower the citizens. This is the crucial point. I like that. And I have to say that when you describe uh, no sun and rain, that's my daily life in Helsinki. Oh. So <laughs> hopefully the rest is much. That's what <laughs> global warming is bringing to, to Helsinki. Yeah. Yeah. In, in one of your books, uh, you say that the internet has changed our lives, but it has not still yet changed our cities. Which are the main challenges we have to start working on today to create that city of the future? You know, Elevators used to have uh, people driving the elevator 100 years ago. Did you see the old elevators? They were they had sometimes benches because it was so slow that the people were sitting there. Now elevators don't have a driver obviously, and they go super fast. The cars, uh, self-driving cars, will be the elevators of the future in the cities, but they will not vertical. They will be horizontal. If I go to mm. from one place to another. I can ask that elevator that will be a kind of car that maybe a kind of robot will bring us there. And then obviously I don't own the elevator in my building. So that means that they, you don't need to own a car if you want to move from one point to another. This makes sense because then that means that we don't need, people are wasting so many hours inside cars because there are so many cars and then the cities are, are collapsed in Moscow, in Beijing, in many Chinese cities people spend their lives inside cars. From my point of view, one next challenge is connected with mobility that will be connected with or public transportation or hmm. sharing cars. Uber has been just the beginning of this, but there will be many other things connected with Tesla technology or uh, electrical cars. From my point of view, the next big revolution is connected with energy, with idea, with the internet of energy. How is possible that we are importing gas from Argelia or from the Middle East in order to burn it here in Barcelona in order to produce our energy while we have sun that we could produce our energy. So that means that we need to ask that the builders need to be self-sufficient because the people will be richer. They will have the energy for free because the solar panels will be part of the buildings in the same way that we have the insulation or we have the windows or we have the doors. So that means that producing energy in cities will be another challenge. Performing mobility will be another challenge. You know, I work a lot in China now, and now they are not allowed to leave their buildings and they are not allowed for sure to leave the neighborhoods. So that means that our idea about the self-sufficient neighborhoods, it makes sense. Hmm. The industrial city building in the 20th century is providing us energy in a centralized way. They provide food in a centralized way. They manage water in the centralized way. 
But every time we have a challenge, for example, the virus, now we break the units of the city in the small, in the small pieces. And then that means that if we were able to make buildings that produce energy, produce food, or neighborhoods uh, in Barcelona, I would say that the unit is 500 meter radius from the market. So I would say that the neighborhood that is one ki- square kilometer is the scale of the European cities. And then the challenge is, can we produce all our energy there? Can we produce 50% of our food? Can we produce the things that we need by using 3D printing, by recycling materials? Yes, we can. So the question is, why we don't do that? And then the, and how to do it? Yeah, yeah and then the, how to do it? You know, another interesting thing is that until now, ecology was the remediation of the uh, capitalistic exploitation of the world. And then the people are talking to ecology like, oh, good is good ecology, but the business is in another place. The next big business is ecology. So the economy is the ecology. We were talking, discussing with Mar Palai about this. Economy is the uh, ecology is the next economy because the business will be produce energy and to manage the energy in the buildings. Economy will be to produce food and to manage the food and to give the service of the food uh, in the cities themselves. So I would say the bioeconomy is the next thing that is coming. We know how the digital world will be. There are no big changes. We know already artificial intelligence will add something. We know that big data is good for something. They, many people, it is fine to ask Google, read our emails and so on. So we know about all these kind of things. But then the question is, what is next? The next big change will be connected with the biocomputation, with the bioeconomy, with transforming the ecology in the real economy. Because the big challenge is not to move faster, is to be a zero, to, to live in a zero emissions planet. And this is really the big challenge. We have that option of Blade Runner and not Sun anymore. And obviously, I will work for this. And the people in the Middle East that they are now uh, drilling oil, at some point, they will realize that they, uh, no one will be interested in buying their oil. It's not that they don't want to drill the oil. Is that we find we don't want to buy them. They will be because they have resources, they will join the revolution. This is from my point of view what should happen in the history. Every time that we have these major changes, there were some big disasters before, there were wars. United Nations was created after the war because the people didn't want to talk. So the question is if we need to have a big disaster before the transformation is happening. I would prefer that this is not happening, obviously. I 100% agree. The main point you were making now is we have the option between the radical crisis or something more constructive, like the sustainable view economy you were referring to. This reminds me that, you know, during the project I was working on in India a few months ago, I noticed uh, how there as well they have what we have in Catalonia, is this tradition of building human castles. Yeah. Uh, there are a few lessons from uh, from this art, but there is one that stands in front of all other, and that's the importance of diversity to reach that objectives yeah. and collaboration in the team to reach that vision. Yeah. What is the role of collaboration to make the vision for 2050 you were talking about possible? There were many founders and many people connected with uh, the construction of the digital world. 
Um, for example, the inventor of the World Wide Web, he gave uh, this for free to the humanity. And the first internet was developed, connected with the militants in America, but then there was the university research. Hackers came from MIT because they wanted to somehow to transform the world and to put value in the world. But then what happened with all these idealistic vision is that now the tough guys are running internet as a great business. And then the problem is that this digital world is creating segregation instead to, have to promote the cooperation. Obviously, we are cooperating with many people. I am connected with education and with research and with many people around the world that they are trying to invent the future. But the business, as we understand today, is that they need to have some winners and some losers. And then the bad news is that the digital world has created richer people, really super rich people, and, and poorer people. And from my point of view, this is a disaster because I will say that there is nothing good after that. Uh, every big crisis in humanity has been related with this kind of situation. Then, if you look to the, to the reality in our environment, the best systems, the most resilient systems are those that have most diversity. Forests, for example, for me, are the model of how cities should be. Because in a forest, you have the biodiversity. There is a good equilibrium between the different species. And each species somehow is fighting each other, but is finding the right equilibrium between animals, between plants, between the, the, the water, and so on. And then I think that uh, forests and uh, ecology uh, teach us that diversity is fundamental for the progress of things. So imagine that you have a city where you have only, uh, you are only producing steel. And then one day there is another material that is growing in another place. What will happen to this, this city? It will disappear. This is Detroit. No, they were doing cars. There is a crisis. Everything collapsed. The basic cities are where you have many different sectors. You have the industrial sector, you have the primary sector, you have the tourists, you have the innovation, you have the education. And then with this equilibrium, in moment of crisis, you can push in one direction and, uh, and you can change with another direction. So that means that economy based in only one things are bad. In the same way, if you have a city where you have only one kind of forces, you have only some kind of uh, category of people, you have only one, even one language, you have even, uh, people are protected from each other, you don't allow immigrants to come. Then what you are doing is you are creating a segregation that is not part of the, I would say, the evolution. Obviously, we need to take care about uh, and to create the rules. And, and I would say that America was inspiring the world during the 20th century with the right combination of democracy of freedom. And somehow we are losing that. I mean, they are not mm -hmm. taking this kind of influence around the world. And I think that this is super bad. Also, look what is happening in the UK and maybe what will happen in Europe and so on. So I would say that they will learn from the history, the moments where there was mobility, when there was an ideal about the construction, about cooperation, this was the moment when things were growing and when humanity is progressing. So the history of humanity is a 
history of waves of progress of decadence. I would like to keep working uh, to see progress and in order to see progress, uh, diversity of races, cultures, languages, cooperation between people of different categories and different cultures, I think is fundamental. I think what you are mentioning now, especially regarding how the whole environment and all the development has been turning into business development and forgetting about the person. That is something to remind us how to take it back. How do you think that we can put back the human being in the center of the design process, keeping in mind issues like global warming? In other words, how can people and cities become the solution instead of the problem, keeping in mind this human component you were just referring to? Yeah, you know, I want to follow your introduction because you say by 2050, there will be 9.7 billion people living in cities. No, 9.7 people in the planet and 68 living in cities. You know, I did some numbers. And in order to reach those numbers, during the mm -hmm. next 30 years, every month will build the equivalent to a city of 6.6 million. So... We are facing, in the next 30 years, the biggest process of urbanization in the world. The biggest process of urbanization in the history. That means that if we keep running business as usual, for sure we'll destroy the planet. Because the question is not only that we run cities of zero emissions, the question is how many emissions we produce when we are building the cities, when we are transforming our economy. And then, from that point of view, I would say that what we need to, to do is really to have a good mixture of leadership from the people, the goal of cooperation. You know, our politics are, at least in the Western world, are chosen by the people. That means that they represent that. They represent our goals and our ideals. And it's true that there are other forces that they don't, I would say, that they, they, they have some other agenda. And today we see many, I would say, interventions between blocks. I mean, the wars between America and China and so on, and the interventions on Russia, and then the, the lack of leadership of Europe. This is not good news for our future, because what we need in moments of changes are strong leaderships. Otherwise, we'll be lost in the translation. So from that point of view, Obviously, each of us, we can have small contributions. But you know, when I was working in the city council, I came from a bottom-up approach, but I learned that if we don't have a top-down answer, there is no solution. I mean, the mayors are fundamental to take the decisions, to transform the economy. If the people live mostly in cities, if the missions are produced in cities, that means that the solutions are in cities. But then... Now we need new paradigms. PowerPoint are over. We don't need to talk anymore. We need to transform things. We need to put the money in the right places. Cities have budget. Cities have money. But if they keep doing things that are not addressing this challenge, then uh, it would be that this faster is ready. You know? So I would say that obviously cities are the solution. Cities are, can be the problem, but cities are the solution. Citizens are also leading what uh, politics are deciding. We need to have both a bottom-up approach and a top-down approach. And we need to have a new kind of leadership, new kind of project we need to have 
best practice, but not just to talk about them. You know, we need really to see that things are real. And then, mm-hmm. you know, we know we, we, I live in a city where the so-called smart cities has been very important. But from my point of view, the concept of a smart city are, is completely over. The digital world has allowed us to wire the, to create infrastructure, to wire our cities for the new challenge. And the new challenge is the bioeconomy and the bio cities. Smart city doesn't mean anything. A sensor is measuring things, but is not taking the decision. We don't want cars. We want to produce our food here. Buildings should produce energy. We are going to reduce all our matter. This will be a strong transformation. As you are indicating, uh, there will be radical innovation needed in the process. And as you just mentioned, that means that PowerPoints and talks without action won't help at all, right? This also means that to develop an agile mindset, uh, to learn by doing in a way, and adapt as the trial and error approach somehow like brings new insights, it's already today a core skill to develop to create those actions and those results you are referring now. Which steps do you see that have already taken place to develop that new way of thinking? Because at the end of the day, you're saying that that's a true challenge. How do we change that mindset and that way of thinking? Which things have already happened that is telling you that we are potentially on the right uh, direction? In the right you know what? The truth, the truth is that when in Europe, they, they try to approve the European Commission this challenge for the new vision for Europe 2050 zero emissions. Uh, well, there was a the problem in Poland because the workers in the coal mine, they say, well, the government said we don't want to support that and so on. No? In, in many cities, they make the declaration of climate en- emergency. And you know what they do? Almost nothing. <laughs> the politics, they think that saying, oh, we do the declaration, things will change. But it's not true. You know, it's not true. We need to say that we need to define the plan on what we will be doing every year in the next years. Obviously, there will be changes. You know why innovation happens in companies? Because they need to have a developer plan. They need to raise the money to do the things and they need to be successful in the, in the market. Cities don't need to do that. Majors will be reelected in 40 years or not. And they really don't need to deliver. I remember Mayor Bloomberg talking on New York and they say, uh, you know, citizens don't want to change. They don't like innovation. In general, they live okay. If you do a participatory budget, people will take care of uh, what is just in front of their door. I mean, innovation never happened in the consistent and radical way without having strong vision and having a strong leadership, connecting science with production, I think that this is fundamental, no? And today, what happened is that, yeah, we, we do demonstrations, we, we talk about that with the declaration, but the real change is not happening. I remember myself talking in, making a lecture in, in Miami with the developers association there, and I said, mm-hmm. you know, Miami will be the ground zero of the global I mean, uh, the sea level rise, because you know that they have a, they are built on top of some kind of porous stone. And then uh, the, the water is coming from the ground to up. And I told them, you have two solutions. 
you could be the leading place in order to discuss and to work on the future of cities, or you can be waiting for the drama. And then one day the, the carriers from American Army will come here to rescue you. And they say, okay, we prefer the second option. We'll keep business as usual and we'll wait the army to save us. So from my point of view, I think that big changes will come if some strong leadership. Now today, Jeff Bezos announced uh, Amazon owner that he will have a fund of $10 billion to, uh, for innovation in uh, fighting with the global warming. Again, other rich people, now Bill Gates, now he becomes mm-hmm. one of the voices talking about the climate change. We need more people. We need also the organization. We need the citizens to do that. I don't see strong leadership in the mayors, and the mayors are crucial for that. They are still in the talking mode and making videos and so on, but not making real actions. In a way, you are pointing at two different sections, if I had to summarize our interview so far. One is pointing at how the collaboration is taking place, meaning the importance of having one integrated system where water supply, sewage, electricity, digital development, etc., it's all part of the same system. So it's easier to coordinate. And the other one is about a paradigm shift on the way that leadership is making policies and actions are taking place, as well as how do we learn from crisis? How do we learn from when things are not going right, like us in China at the moment? How can we take the, the right lessons out of this then to create that solution? So instead of blaming and trying to find responsibles, we focus right away towards, okay, what can we learn from this and which are the things that need to change in order to create that self-sustainability with the human component from the beginning. Uh, do I understand right what you were pointing at? Yeah, absolutely. And I would say about the smart cities, uh, first of all, we start uh, t- 20 years ago with that program. The, our master, uh, the first year was called Advanced Architecture and Digital Cities. So that means that we have been working on this topic a very long time ago. That's why when we arrived to the city council, I was chief architect. We had already a vision and a plan. And this was the moment when IBM launched uh, this concept of the smart cities, and then many people were joining that. You know what happened is that the companies, they are uh, waiting for instructions. Obviously, they are trying to sell. We have great partnership with great companies, but the problem is that no one is giving instructions to them. They were Mm -hmm. trying to sell us sensors and something like this. It was a funny conversation, and I told them, you know, you are trying to sell me something that I don't need. Why Why are you trying to? to sell this. But the truth is that if they will have the right uh, orders or the right instructions, they will follow that instructions. If Barcelona, New York, Paris, and Los Angeles decide some new policies, thousands of cities will follow them and hundreds of companies will produce what they need. The question is that today we have still mayors that they think that the companies are their enemies that they are always reacting. For example, here in Barcelona, Airbnb is forbidden and Uber is forbidden. I agree on that. But you know what? We are not doing anything. You know, we, I, I cannot take a taxi with a good application here in Barcelona. So they forbidden the innovation, but they don't really pro- promote the innovation, you know? So what I mean is that uh, about the future of cities, companies, that are making business, that in the future mm-hmm. will be business connected with ecology are waiting for instructions. And then the leadership is not coming from the politics and from the clients. The, 
Many mayors are just complaining, oh, this is bad, this is... But they are waiting. People are waiting for instructions. So I think that we need to be positive. Change will happen for better or for worse, but change will happen. And what I would prefer is that we are able to work together to discuss things, to forget a bit the ideological principles, because there are many people from the right side, from the left side, that they want to have a better world. They want to develop the biocities, but then they are more fighting between each other because of the low-level ideology from the 19th century and not addressing the challenges of the 21st century. Uh, uh, two years ago, I translated the general theory of urbanization written by Adibil de Pons Cerda uh, in the year 1877. Uh, so the word urbanization was invented in Barcelona. And then, you know what? The year before, Hackel coined the word ecology. And then this was 1866. And the same year that Cerda published uh, the general theory of urbanization, Marx published The Capital. So that means that the same year uh, where there were two approaches about how to solve things. Some people say we need to have the social revolution in order to get some kind of freedom or something and to prove our lives. And then the others say, okay, we have a challenge with the industrial thing, but let's use science and knowledge in order to improve our life. So I would say this debate between ideology of science has been since that moment, exactly from the same year. Uh, obviously, Marx had very good contributions and many others that were very bad that we saw in the communist world that was falling uh, at the end of the 20th century, in, especially in Russia. There are other places of the world that they are still working on that. But the truth is that ideology from the 19th century will not save the world. Now we have a new challenge that we don't know how it will be solved. The challenge is connected with the global warming. The answer must be a cooperation between people. We need to work in unite somehow people from different ideologies, from different knowledge, from different cultures. We need to, I would say, uh, to, to, to include, to invite even people coming from uh, other countries from Africa and everywhere. Africa is the future of humanity, for sure. Big urbanization will happen there. We need to learn from there. They have uh, most of the forests in the world, and they are still there. So I would say that we need to work together. We need to develop science. We need to transform science into projects. Science mm -hmm. is not enough. We need to transform science into proposals and proposals into investment an investment into real transformation. And drive that action to create true change. To close the interview today, let me ask you then, which, according to your opinion, which are the five main cities that could potentially drive and lead the needed change you are talking about? Which are the five cities that could yeah. do that? I would say that in Europe, there are two small cities like Copenhagen and Barcelona that can be interesting places because in general has been very progressive. Copenhagen, for example, is saying that they want to be the first zero emission in the world. We'll see, but it will be a great news. In China, China want to lead the world, and maybe they will do it. Obviously, uh, they don't have the same uh, political values as us, but they are. They work hard. They they uh, and and in many many times they really want to do good things. Uh, I have many friends in Shenzhen. Shenzhen is the San Francisco 
or uh, of uh, of China, and there are many good things happening there. So Shenzhen, that is in the Bay Area with Hong Kong, Guangzhou, and Macau, we should look at this. Uh, I would say that in America, uh, my son is studying in LA, and LA, I think that has part of the drama of the American city. San Francisco will be a very easy answer, but I would like to see how uh, things happening in LA where the digital technologies are starting to be applied to the physical transformation. Tesla factories in Nevada. And, uh, and then, yeah, what happened over there will be interesting to look at it. I, I could not tell you any specific city in Africa, but the next great city will be in Africa for sure. Africa will have the biggest process of urbanization. We are trying to develop what we call the forest city project because we need to do cities in a different way, using wood, making buildings like trees and cities like forests. So to make it, if we keep doing industrial cities for the, these next 2 billion people that will be living in cities in India, Africa, China, or Latin America, for sure will destroy the world. So I would say that uh, the third city, my third or fourth candidate will be in Africa for sure. But I don't know. I don't have the answer. And I would say that the, fit, the good city will be in the countryside. We were always uh, with my our students discussing um, how big need to be a city in order to be a city. No, uh, one thousand people living together or twenty-five thousand people living together. This is a city or not? Well, someone say in China we say that you need one million people to do that. But there are many cities in Germany with 100,000 people. So I would say that I would like to see like a small, medium cities in Europe that they are able to reinvent themselves to lead these changes. It would be great to see in some rural areas to see incredible projects and also to see these middle-sized uh, cities because they have more, they are a community and they could show us how the city of the future will be. You know, the, the real size, people don't live in cities, people live in communities, in neighborhoods. Your real scale is one kilometer around your home. Uh, because uh, imagine that the city, uh, we start to count cities uh, starting at home, we starting by ourselves. So the way we look at to the world will be different. So I would like to think of this idea that we have as many cities as citizens are in the world, and then that we need to start to work hard in our home, in our building, in our community, in our neighborhood, in order to transform the world. This would be the best approach. So not just changing the way that economy is taking place, but also transforming the understanding of what a city actually is. Vicente, it's been a real pleasure. I know that you are extremely busy and today you are taking a flight to Moscow. So you have a lot to do still. Highly appreciate it. We have enjoyed a lot the discussion with you and I'm sure that our audience will feel extremely inspired on your visions and at the same time thoughts. I'm going to put down in the description of this podcast the link so you can hear more from Vicente and also see his videos in YouTube. I highly recommend that. Vicente, thanks a lot for your time and it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Bye-bye. So that was all for today and thank you very much for being a loyal listener. Let us know if there is any topic you would like us to cover down in the space for comments. Have a great rest of the week. Goodbye.
Thank you for listening our bi-weekly podcast. And remember, this is about spreading and sharing the knowledge. So feel free to forward this audio to anybody you believe could get any benefit out of it. Coaching Talks Podcast, your inspirational moment to continue your growth journey.